You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Well, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins to apply the great truths of Colossians 1 and 2. Specifically, the truths concerning the incredible identity that Christians have in Christ Jesus, that we are complete in him, that he is uh, the uh, great mystery Christ in us, the hope of glory, that, that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him, and specifically that we have uh, a new nature in him, the circumcision of Christ, that we have died with him, been buried with him, and have risen with him, and even ascended with him. Paul wants to focus on that particular doctrine, that particular reality in the life of the Christian, and then apply it. Say, hey, listen, as long as this is who you are, then this is how you can then live. And this is the difference between religion and uh, true Christianity. Religion will tell you to live a certain way in order to attain a certain blessing, but Christianity says you've attained this great blessing and position, so now you have the ability, with the help of God, to live a certain kind of way, a certain type of lifestyle. And so today we're going to focus on Colossians 3, verse 1 through 11, where Paul is going to basically give three main exhortations. He's going to give us something to focus upon, uh, basically our identity in Christ. Secondly, he's going to tell us to put something specific to death and to remove something specific from our activity and from our life. He starts off in verse 1 and says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now when Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, he's not uh, urging doubt, you know, sort of saying, hey, I don't know if this has happened, but if this has happened, uh, the idea of if then is the idea of since or because you have been raised with Christ. In other words, the if then is designed to cause them to think about the reality, not doubt the possibility. So they're to think about the reality that they had been raised with Christ. Now, this harkens back to Colossians 2, specifically verse 11 through 15, which I've already uh, alluded to, that they had a new nature and had died, had been buried, and had been raised with Christ. So he says, if that is true in you, then this is what you need to do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So a phrase that's repeated there in verse 1 and 2 is the phrase, things that are above. In verse 1, you're to seek the things that are above. And in verse 2, you're to set your minds on things that are above. Now, there might be a slight variation in the meaning there, to seek 
and to set your minds on, but the emphasis is more than likely a similar emphasis. The focus, however, is on the things that are above. We're to seek the things that are above. We're to set our minds on the things that are above. And so the question is, what is Paul referring to when he talks about the things that are above? Now, one way of taking this, of course, is just the simple uh, way of saying, listen, it's good for a Christian to focus on the things of eternity. You focus on heaven, you focus on the uh, hereafter, and as you do, and as you set your mind on the hope of heaven, it does something wonderful to your heart here. To remember that you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner, uh, this world is not your home ultimately, you have a home in heaven. And of course, this is a biblical concept and has great New Testament support and Old Testament support as well. There, there is a, a city whose foundations are from God. We're to set our hope and our confidence upon eternity. However, even though it's good to focus on heavenly things, and, and it's obviously a biblical concept and very ma a mature thing for a believer to do, I think Paul is talking about something different when he says to set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says it secondly in verse 2 as things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So I think when Paul is referring to focusing on things that are above, he's talking about the new nature that we have in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, Paul will say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he'll list a few things that are earthly within them. And so I think when Paul is talking about focusing on things that are above, he's been explaining to the Corinthians that they're complete in him, that they need to be connected to the head, which is Christ Jesus, that they have a new nature in Christ and have died with him, been buried with him, have been raised with him. I don't think he's just giving an exhortation saying, hey, Colossians, focus on heaven. I think he's saying, hey, Colossians, focus and remember the new man or woman that you are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. The false teachers there in Colossae were acting very heavenly, but in fact were, were very earthly. They were preaching self-helpism, uh, religion, uh, earthly spirituality. It sounded heavenly, but in reality it was very earthly. And Paul is going to tell them, listen, put to death the things that are earthly amongst you. Focus on the things that are above. Not on religion or spirituality, but set your minds upon Christ. He says for verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, he gives the negative side of that first positive exhortation. He says, you know, set your mind on things above where Christ is and but you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. One of the reasons that a Christian should set their focus upon Christ and the new nature they have in him and the great connection and identity that they have embedded in him and inside of him 
is because after conversion, their life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes so far as to say in verse 4, Christ who is your life. Your identity as a believer is wrapped up in Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. I have a wonderful marriage uh, to a wonderful woman. Christina really makes our family work, our marriage work. She's a godly woman. She loves the Lord. One of the things I think that has led to the success of our marriage up to this point has been this particular issue, to, to come to a place in our lives where we realize that our life is not hidden inside of our spouse. Our life is actually hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. And so we understand personally, even though that we're one together, one flesh, we understand personally that our greatest satisfaction our greatest identity, our greatest fulfillment is going to come directly from Christ because our life is hidden with him. So as we fellowship with him, as we enjoy him, as we partake of his word, and as we fellowship even together around him and about him as we pray together, we're connecting to the place that our life is truly found and we are simply blessings that he has given uh, to us. And so uh, to remember this is so important for the Christian. Remember Christ who is your life. One day you will appear with him in glory. He goes on in verse five and he, after telling them what to focus upon, he gives them a stern exhortation about something that they needed to put to death. He says in verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he has this list of Five things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So because this is who you are, since you are uh, hidden with Christ in God, because your identity is wrapped up in him, because you have that heavenly uh, new nature, because of that, then, you know, you still have this earthly body. So put to death what's earthly inside of you, Paul says. Because of this great victory, put these specific things to death. And this is the thrust of the New Testament, that we uh, fight against these uh, tendencies of the flesh from a position of victory. Much like the uh, men in Israel's army when they pursued the Philistines after David had defeated Goliath. We're like those armies. We are running in the victory that Christ has won uh, for us. Now, this list of five is a fascinating list. The first four of the five seem to be deeply embedded in uh, sexual immorality, lustful tendencies. Uh, the first one is the phrase sexual immorality. This is unlawful sexual intercourse. Uh, then he says impurity, which refers likely to sexual sins, perverted or unnatural. 
Then passion, which is, is likely alluding to powerful desires that lead to sexual sins. And then evil desire, fourthly, which could be used in a lot of different ways, but more than likely in this context is a reference to base sexual uh, evil desires. Now, why four words to describe really what amounts to one basic sin? Well, if you look around the world that Paul was living in and the world that we live in, I think it takes a few different words to describe all the different forms of sexual immorality, lust that are available to the modern man. And so Paul basically gives this exhortation and says, listen, one of the chief things you Colossians are going to need to put off and put to death inside of you is this tendency to live sexually outside of the bounds that God has uh, drawn for uh, you. And I think that you could build a strong case that from Genesis to Revelation, one of the pinnacle signs of rebellion, one of the chief sins of man against God is this particular area of sexual appetite. God has designed from the very beginning. I mean, we need to remember this. God himself created uh, the sex act and it was an enjoyable thing that God created for the blessing of a husband and a wife together in a covenantal relationship with one another. That's where it's for one safe. That's where it's number two healthy. That's where number three, it is, uh, you know, good for the heart, but it's the only place where sex can be enjoyed in a serving kind of way where you're actually involved in the blessing of another rather than taking from another hurting another, which, uh, any sexual activity outside of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman is a selfish act. And so this pinnacle sin, it's, it's sort of man's chief way of saying to God, uh, I know that you've designed it to be like this, but I don't want to submit to your leadership for my life. I want to be God. I'll be sovereign over uh, myself. And this, of course, is evidenced in uh, Romans 1, probably most forcefully, uh, when Paul builds his case that God gave the rebellious world up to their own sinful desires, even to the point where uh, women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, some would reference this particular sin of sexual immorality, of any sex act outside of the covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman, whether it be homosexuality or fornication or cohabitation or bestiality, no matter how extreme on the spectrum, it's all sin in the sight of God. Some would speak of it as if it's a gender-specific temptation. But the reality is, is that men and women struggle greatly in this area. It takes two to tango, as they say. And uh, even though men are obviously engaged in our, cult in our culture, so many men are, have given themselves to pornography and then 
played that fantasy out into prostitution and uh, more. Uh, even though men are grossly involved in this particular sin, women themselves are definitely involved in this sin as well. And we haven't made it any easier either. I know the environment I'm living in, uh, people are remaining single longer than ever before in some ways. Uh, going through puberty at a very early ages, some studies I've seen show that earlier and earlier children are going through puberty. I think it's debatable, but potentially as a result of being overly exposed to sexually explicit or even uh, sexually suggestive material at a very early age through photographs and videos and commercials. And as they're awakened sexually, they have, because the marriage age is getting older and older, such a long time to wait before they can express their sexual desires in a place that God has designed in the context of marriage. And so this is a very serious area, and I appreciate that Paul was willing to get right after it at the outset. He doesn't start with something minor, you know, stealing post-it notes from your workplace or something like that. He says, this is what you need to put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, uh, evil desire. It's important to remember, I think, in the midst of talking about this particular sin, that temptation itself is not the sin. To recognize beauty to, and to then say to yourself, I'm not going to lust over that beauty in my heart, but to recognize that there is a struggle inside of you in wanting to do such a thing. The temptation itself is not the sin. It's when you begin to fantasize and begin to enter into it. And so I encourage Christians all the time. This is one of those areas uh, some have asked, why did Paul in this passage say, put certain things to death? I think this is just one of those areas where it's either going to kill you or you are going to kill it. So be aggressive, get after it. Now, he adds to this list of four, the fifth thing he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. At first glance, it seems like Covetousness is this random addendum to a list regarding sexual immorality. But really, what is covetousness? It's an inappropriate desire for more than God has allotted to you. And sexual immorality is simply an inappropriate desire for more experiences and pleasures than God has allotted to you. That's where pornography is such a killer. It, takes a man or a woman, they begin to view it, flirt with it, play with it. And what they're doing is they're acting very selfishly and saying, I want something that goes far beyond what God has allotted for me, which is very similar to the sin of covetousness. And I think that these two sins quite often, frankly, go together. You find a very covetous man or woman greedy in their ways. They're always trying to get more in the material realm. And it's overcome their heart. And they're never satisfied and never content materially. Often they're never content sexually. And so Paul says, get on it. You've got to deal with these things. Now perhaps there'll be someone in the Colossian church saying, why? Why should I take this so seriously? Well, he says, verse 6, here's a reason 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Uh, This is not the camp that you want to be in. Study the Old Testament. You can see various expressions of God's wrath. The wrath of God is coming on these again. You don't want to be in this camp. And reason number two, he says in verse seven, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. In other words, this is your past lifestyle. Give these things up. Now in verse eight, he moves on and he begins to give a second list of uh, five things with an additional sixth item that he mentions later. He says, but now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And in verse 9, at the beginning of it, do not lie to one another. So put all of these things away. Now, a lot of this has to do with the heart and with the speech that betrays or uh, reveals the heart. Verse 3, anger, wrath, and malice. Now, this is kind of, again, one major exhortation with various nuanced facets of the sin. Anger is a general disposition of chronic anger. It's just low uh, level, low beneath the surface. This person is an angry person. But then you have wrath. These are outbursts of anger. Anger is there, but then there's this wrath that rises up from time to time. And, and malice has a lot to do with the disposition of this person. They are, have a harmful, a wicked disposition. And uh, this is, as well, not a gender-specific uh, problem or sin, but I found that men often have given themselves to some form of anger. Women as well, but it's very easy for me to understand the male part of this, especially since this has been a part of my maturation process in Christ personally. I'll never forget when my eyes began to be open to the reality that I had a little bit of an anger problem, that there was this perfection within me, this expectation that I had of others that was unreasonable, that would lead to anger, not just verbalizing how how I saw things or explaining things or leading well, but lashing out with anger. And the people that were under my leadership or uh, who were in relationship with me, like my future wife, this is back when we were engaged that I discovered this for the first time, uh, were suffering as a result. And I really began to bring this to the Lord as an opportunity for growth because the Lord is angry yet without sin. He's angry over every child that gets abused, over sexual sin, over uh, famines and poverty. He's angry over the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. He's angry about the devil. He's angry about many things, but without sin. It's a productive kind of thing. And I know that the Lord wanted to begin working in my life in that kind of way to deal with the anger and the wrath and the malice and to have a godly anger, but this unrighteous anger had to go. He says also in verse 8 that you have to drive out slander and obscene talk. You need to put these things away as well, the making someone else look bad with your words or uh, you know, just talking very inappropriately for a believer, for a Christian. And... Then he says in verse 9, and also do not lie to one another. Paul, in his mind, 
usually in the New Testament, when he gave these lists of exhortations, he really didn't have individuals in mind. In the sense that, for him, the Christian life was so much of a community-based experience. And you would be rubbing shoulders with fellow believers. And so for Paul, in his mind, something like lying or slander or obscene talk, these were community-harming sins. They actually fractured the body of Christ, fractured the community. And the thing about lying to someone is that you immediately break the trust that you have built, sometimes over years. And it might take years, depending on the gravity or the weight of that lie, to rebuild and repair that relationship again. He gives them the why of these exhortations, of this second list of things to put away. In verse 9, when he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, you're a new person. You've put off the old self. You're being renewed in knowledge. And this is what you're being renewed into, he says, verse 10, after the image of your creator. Who was their creator? Who had given them this new self? Well, Jesus. So as you and I grow and as we walk with Christ, as we set our minds on things above where Christ is, as we focus on our relationship with him, that our life is hidden with Christ in God, as we set our minds upon that, we are renewed in knowledge and changed and transformed into the image of Christ himself. Now here you have these Gnostics, perhaps, or others, uh, selling this idea that they had the secret to true spirituality and true success. And, you know, I got to tell you, the more I look around at the Christian world and community in a modern sense, I think so many of the books that are written, some of them coming from the prosperity uh, camp, but I think so many of the things that are said or written uh, that highlight some kind of uh, secret, some kind of new insight that sounds biblical, I think so much of it has its roots in, in a Gnostic view. Because here Paul is just saying, look, walk with Jesus, enjoy Jesus, you'll find real power, real change, real transformation in that place. Here in this place, verse 11, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Another great reason, Paul is saying, for putting off lying and slander and obscene talk and anger and wrath and malice, another great reason for putting this, these things off is because here in the church, uh, a lot of our distinctions have been driven away Christ is all, and he's in all of these different people, whether it's Greek or Jew, you know, sort of racial divides, or circumcised and uncircumcised, a religious cultural divide, or barbarians or Scythians. These men weren't necessarily opposites, but were different from one another, or slave or free, you know, these social differences. He says, listen, 
the reality is now in Christ, these designations, although practically speaking, do exist. Positionally speaking, they do not exist. And you are called to dwell with one another. And if you are lying and slandering and angry with one another, well, you're going to hurt this new community that Christ has created. Christ is all, he says. He's all that matters. And he's in all. He's in all of these believers. And so Paul is telling these Christians in Colossae, put on this new man, become who you are in Christ Jesus. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.